You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Donald Robertson. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You know, at first when I began writing these books, people did tell me that they didn't think there was an audience for them. They thought it was a kind of niche subject. No one was really that interested in it. And then gradually it became clear that there's a surprisingly big audience of people that really have a craving for classical wisdom and uh, are interested in history, but interested in the relationship between history and self-improvement and philosophy and psychotherapy, all that kind of stuff. Um, And there are different, I I noticed early on when we organized conferences and things like that, I've dealt with so many people over the years. You know, our online conferences have, uh, the last couple we ran had maybe 1,800 people each attending them. So over the years, and I run a Facebook group that's got nearly 90,000 people in it. So I've spoken to thousands of people over the years um, about their interest in stoicism. And I noticed that they kind of divide into different groups. So first of all, there are classicists and philosophers, of course, that are interested in it. That's no big surprise. But then there are psychotherapists like myself and counsellors and life coaches that were interested in stoicism for other reasons. And then I noticed there were sports coaches and fitness instructors who were interested in stoicism. And then I noticed that people in all branches of the military uh, were interested in stoicism. In fact, we ran a military conference recently. And uh, I noticed uh, people that worked in the prison service were often interested in stoicism. And so there were these distinct groups. But as you say, you know, often people describe one of the main groups as millennials that work in the tech industry. And uh, I think what people tell me is that one of the reasons they're drawn to stoicism is that they feel bombarded with information through social media and through the news media, and they have a sense that this is distorted. It's kind of sophistry or propaganda that they're getting a lot of the time. It's designed to make them angry and afraid in many cases to captivate their attention. They're being manipulated by the media. It's becoming increasingly obvious to people that that's happening to them. And yet this takes a larger and larger, more dominating role in their life. And it's often manipulating them with regard to world events that on the one hand, they care strongly about like wars in other countries or elections or the pandemic or global warming, but on the other hand, that they don't have a great deal of direct control over. And this, what the Stoics do is offer a philosophy which at its very core provides us with a way to kind of square the circle, to continue to care about events in the world without feeling emotionally overwhelmed by them. You know, because most people like would either just get really frustrated and drive themselves crazy worrying about global events and the stuff in the news, or they just give up and become kind of nihilistic and indifferent towards everything. And the Stoics want to offer us an alternative, a third way, a philosophical attitude that allows us to continue caring, but without uh, becoming neurotic about the events that we're experiencing uh, that lie beyond our direct control. Given your background, not only in philosophy, but also as a, as a psychotherapist, I'm sure you've written a lot of you know, research papers, things of that sort. So I was wondering what your thought process was or what your thought process is when writing books. How do you end up blending such colorful and imaginative writing you know, with nonfiction, philosophical, hard academia? Well, first of all, um, when I suggested this idea to my publisher, they kind of said to me, 
I said, it's going to be a mixture of philosophy and psychotherapy um, and uh, history. Um, and they said, look, Donald, when, you know, when you go in a bookshop and, you know, there's like a, there are bookshelves and one of them is marked self-help and one of them is marked history and one of them is marked psychology. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, we can't put your book on all of those shelves. You know, you, you kind of need to pick a pigeonhole, you need to pick a genre. That's how these things normally work. And it's unusual actually to have a book that combines like all of these, these different genres together. But it seems strange to me to separate them because I was familiar with reading the classics uh, which existed before they were ever separated to begin with. I mean, it's kind of like industrialization and the division of labor or something like psychotherapy and philosophy where the just two aspects of the same thing for a long time. And it's only really in the past couple of hundred years that they were torn apart. And we assume that they're done by two different people. So to me, it wasn't like welding bits together. It was going back to a time when they hadn't been separated. And I think people crave that. They, they At the back of their minds, it's almost like people think, was there a time when all these were just part of one? Does it like, why did we separate them? Don't they kind of belong together somehow? And so you, when you separate these things, people can specialize in them more and there are advantages to doing it, but you also lose something by creating a rift between these different uh, disciplines. So when I actually came down to, to write the book, first of all, it seemed natural to me to write it in that way because I thought, you know, the classical uh, philosophy often combines the, these genres together. And uh, in order, the process of writing itself, I approach in a number of different ways. And I suppose one of the things that helped me a lot is that I have a young daughter. And when I was writing that book, I think she was probably about six or seven years old. And I would tell her stories about Greek mythology and stories about uh, philosophers, like the ones in Diogenes Laertius. And uh, I started to think, you know, maybe adults could benefit from some of these anecdotes. Like, I know they're already popular. Everybody knows the story about Diogenes the Cynic meeting Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great said, is there anything I can do for you? And Diogenes repeatedly said, could you step aside, you're blocking the sun. And there's lots of little anecdotes like that. And I, I thought about that and I thought, why don't we teach these to people? And I, I was well-versed in teaching them to my daughter. Um, so that was my kind of training. I practiced telling her all of these stories. And then in terms of the process of writing itself, I have a poor concentration span after a while of, uh, you know, I guess I read my, my own writing over and over and over again, checking it. Um, but then I, after a while, I get quite bored reading it. So I realized that what I needed to do was to read it out loud. And when I get fed up doing that, I get someone to read it to me. So one of the tactics that I employed when I was writing was to get uh, people to read the manuscript to me. And I often noticed things about it that I hadn't noticed when I was just looking at it on a page. And that also meant that when I was writing How to Think of the Roman Emperor, the last chapter in particular, um, it seemed natural for me to write it in such a way that it seemed that it was designed to be listened to, like an audio book. And uh, I approached it like partially, like I was writing a guided meditation. And in fact, when the audiobook came out, people told me that they've listened to the final chapter many times um, and they treat it like a guided meditation exercise. So those are the, some of the things that I did to kind of like try and approach writing from a few different perspectives and try and get my, my creativity going. 
There's another side to this, which is, so the, the Stoics want to encourage natural affection, cosmopolitan ethics. Um, and so the thing that they think that really kind of mitigates that um, is anger. Um, they think the big problem is, is hatred and anger in society um, and for us as individuals. And I believe that anger is a neglected problem in modern society, funnily enough. There's a kind of modern obsession with self-help or self-improvement. Um, the internet is just awash with information about self-help and self-improvement and therapy, but actually not that much of it refers to anger. And there are psychological reasons for that. Um, when people feel anxious or depressed, they're more likely to blame themselves and therefore they're more likely to seek help and to want to change themselves. But anger is what we call an externalizing emotion. So when people are angry, they usually blame everyone else and they think you need therapy, not me. Like, so people with anger don't tend to self-refer for therapy and they don't tend to seek self-help unless it gets really bad or unless someone else like a spouse or an employer tells them that they should go and seek therapy, but they tend to have a big blind spot to it. And so that's why you've got this internet awash with people seeking self-improvement advice, but often not doing anything to address their anger. And then you've got, you know, people on self-improvement forums trolling one another and flaming one another, ironically. Um, and and self-help gurus that maybe even say and do things that kind of worsen this and, and encourage uh, anger and hatred and animosity towards certain groups. So the, the Stoics thought this is the main thing that we need to address and that by you know making people aware of how anger was destroying them, um, they might become more aware of how it was affecting the relationship with other people and it might get them more into a conversation about what the opposite would be and you know what would be a healthier, uh, more like, ethical way to interact with, with other people in society. You know, I say to people, imagine you've got a leaking tap and you need to change the washer in it or something like that. It's pretty simple, right? And you're trying to do this, but you kind of hit your thumb with a spanner and it really hurts. You get really angry. And then because you're so angry and frustrated, you, it kind of becomes difficult even to fix a leaking tap. You want to throw the spanner across the room. Like you start to get frustrated and impatient and clumsy. So if it's difficult to fix a leaking tap, when you're angry, how much harder is it to fix relationship problems, a broken relationship, or even worse, a broken society, which are infinitely more nuanced and complex uh, problems that we have to deal with. Anger is not the way to address complex interpersonal and social problems, but it's amazing how many people act, talk, think as if anger and hatred somehow offered uh, uh, the promise of a solution to the, the issues that we face in society. Going kind of on a tangent in terms of relationships, but taking it into a little different direction in terms of relationships between disciplines, because I know, again, you have your background in CBT, um, psychotherapy, as well as in philosophy. So I was wondering, what do you see as a potential future or how can the two disciplines interact with one, with one another and help each other? How could CBT and philosophy interact with one another? Yeah, or psych psychotherapy Psych in general with philosophy. I think that's a very good question. There are actually many, many ways in which they can. Um, I think, first of all, 
that the way that psychotherapy normally works is diagnosis driven and time limited and goal directed. At least that's how we usually put it. So the clues in the name of a therapy, um, if people come to see therapists, they usually already have a diagnosis or at least a problem. And so therapists are what I like to call Johnny come late please on the scene because there's already a problem by the time the therapist gets called in. And what philosophy hopes to do is something closer to what modern psychologists call resilience building, emotional or psychological resilience building, which is preventative, something called stress prevention. Um, so it's stoicism works with everybody to reduce the chances of them needing therapy in the future by helping them to uh, cope better with psychological problems. It plays a preventative role. And as we all know, prevention is better than cure. I mean, prevention is much better than cure. Like, so stoicism offers that kind of uh, the holy grail, I call it, of uh, mental health research or prevention. And one of the reasons that it offers this, the thing about resilience building is you can teach people psychological skills that reduce the chances of them developing clinical depression or anxiety in the future, but it's difficult to get them to continue using those skills. So they may do it for a year or two and then they kind of lapse unless you give them booster sessions. Now, one of the things about stoicism is it's kind of permanent, like it's sticky is the neat little word that psychologists like to use to describe it in a way that CBT isn't. So if I, uh, the way I like to illustrate that is by saying that I've never met anyone to this day who has a, an Albert Ellis or an Aaron Beck tattoo or has a quote from CBT books tattooed on them. But I mean, you wouldn't believe how many people I meet that have got Marcus Aurelius tattoos and quotes from Seneca and things tattooed on them. And really what that illustrates is that Stoicism has become a bit more like a religion or a yoga, like Buddhism to them. It's something that they identify with, um, with the whole of their being uh, permanently, or at least in the long term. Whereas CBT is, to put it kind of crudely in a way that might, perhaps even offend some CBT practitioners a little bit. But CBT, by comparison, is a bunch of techniques that people pick up and put back down again. But if you want to build long-term resilience, you can't just give people a bunch of techniques because they're going to stop using them after a while. You need to transform their character. You need to give them something that's effectively a way of life, a yoga um, that they're going to do you know, permanently. So I say stoicism is for life. It's not just for Christmas. You know, it's uh, people get into it. We usually say, you know, they, they read Marcus Aurelius every year or they've been reading Marcus Aurelius for 20 years, 30 years. And that's not true of books on CBT. Generally speaking, you know, people read them maybe once, maybe twice, but they don't read them again 30 or 40 years later, usually. Um, not normally, anyway. So I, the relationship is that Stoicism offers something that's more preventative and that's much broader and more permanent in scope than, than psychotherapy by its very nature uh, could ever offer. Um, because psychotherapy it, by its, its very nature is conceptualized as a treatment for people that already have a problem and is, it's inherently conceptualized, generally speaking, as something that's more limited in scope. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes, or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.